Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I'm joined by special guest Dr. Victor Clark. Victor is Associate Professor of Economics at Florida Gulf Coast University, where he holds the BB&T Distinguished Professorship in Free Enterprise. In addition to being an affiliate scholar of the Acton Institute and Fulbright Scholar at the American University of Armenia, he has taught economics at Henderson State University, and he is the co-author with Robin Clay of Economics and Christian Perspective. Today, Victor is going to be on the show to talk with us about uh, a Christian perspective on economics. Victor, thanks for being with us. Happy to be with you, Doug. There's a lot of things that we could talk about with respect to economics, and what we want to start off with is what does it mean for a Christian to engage in economics, and why might this be important? So when, uh, when my colleague Robin Clay, way back in my first years as a professor at Hope College, when we got the idea to write Economics in Christian Perspective, we perceived a disconnect between the economics that we know and love and the economic understanding that many of our brothers and sisters in the faith had. And so what we wanted to do is share the joyful, hopeful knowledge that we felt like we possessed as people who were not only Christians, but also economists, with people who want to do the right thing when it comes to poverty or caring for the planet, but they just don't know enough economics to be even better stewards and uh, better responsible stewards of uh, God's, God's providence in the world. As a personal anecdote, one of the reasons that I found economics uh, as an important endeavor was because I found myself drifting toward the left politically and realizing that just something didn't sit right. And so that economics sort of, like the Hayek quote, you know, can tell us the limits of, of what we what we think we can design. Yeah, that's right. So what's the full quote there is, um, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Yeah, that's yeah. a powerful quote. It's a nice check on hubris. Yeah, and so I like, um, and we mentioned this in the book, the study of economics goes back to the ancients, but there was also a lot of economic analysis and economic development through the scholastics like Thomas Aquinas and subsequent scholastic scholars at the School of Salamanca. And they saw economics as part of God's created order, and just like they studied astronomy or physics, they wanted to understand the economic order better for the same reason. They felt like when they understood the created order, including the economic order better, they had greater insight and understanding into the master creator himself. And that's thrilling to me as an economist. In fact, it was Kepler, I think, who when he was writing out his treatises about the planets in motion, he would be so moved and inspired by his work that he would spontaneously break into songs of praise. 
And I wish in 2018 there were more economists like that <laughs> who were <laughs> sitting at their desks es estimating multiple regression models and marvel at the wonder that God has created and the way that we relate to each other individually and globally in economic society because God created the fertile environment in which all of that activity happens. Yeah, I don't know if a regression analysis will make us break out <laughs> phrase, but I will say this: there are my children have recently read uh, the Tuttle Twins series. Uh, I, I read it to them, and there was one about the the basically is a kids' version of I Pencil, and they, their eyes just were like, really, like it's just an amazing world we live in. And you and I were reflecting before we started recording of just how amazing it was that you can order things online and you know in your in your pajamas, and it's cheaper because you didn't have to walk into the store and spend time doing it and there's just so much to marvel at in our world and i think if we pay attention to the reason why the reasons why we have such an amazing material and, and i realize this isn't a global thing which we'll talk about that at least in, a, in the u.s and in the west materially we are so much better off than than those who came before us and if we understand the the mechanics behind that it is something to marvel at and i i think there is something praiseworthy for literally millions of years, human beings lived in what today we would call extreme global poverty. And that was even true 200, 220 or so years ago here in the U.S. If you adjust for inflation, the average American in the early 1800s earned about, in today's money, about a dollar a day actually less, more, more or less about 70 cents a day. So the fact that today an average American earns something in the neighborhood of $150 today... Um, that's really thrilling, amazing progress. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten so many great things that have come along with it. Polio vaccines, penicillin, uh, oh, a basic understanding of germ theory and, and medicine that's actually not harmful. I mean, all of these things have come along at the same time, and these really are thrilling because not only is there greater material prosperity, there's greater life expectancy. Families have more leisure time that they can choose to de de devote to their children and to child raising, and yeah, it's a thrilling time to be alive. Yeah. Oh, and that doesn't even account for the fact that there are many things we cannot measure simply because the magnitude of the change has been so great or just such an upset in terms of like the technology. You know, you can't you can't really measure certain things. Yeah, and that's the that's the pesky consumer price index problem, right? How do you how do you compare an IBM Selectric typewriter from 1972 <laughs> to its parallel in 2018? Well, there isn't yeah. one, and whatever we do use as a typewriter is way more expensive, but 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 it's in price in price terms, but it's because it's a superior thing that yeah. we utilize now. Yeah, I mean the entire uh, Radio Shack spread in a magazine 20 years ago is in <laughs> is in like three apps on my iPhone. That's right. So, so why why do you think there's so much pessimism out there? I mean, people don't know that the world has gotten better. Is this just they they haven't studied economics? They haven't seen the hockey stick chart? I think there are several explanations, and I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. I think they're all true to a degree. I think some of it is people, especially Christians, I think rightly are deeply concerned about what they see as consumerism in the culture. 
And I'm concerned about consumerism in the culture. Mm -hmm. There are two Walmart TV commercials that I've seen in the last three months that really give me pause. One was in the run-up to Christmas. It was kids under the tree. <laughs> and under the tree, families were opening up their presents in rapid-fire succession. Mm -hmm. And in the background, they were playing that song from the 90s, the Woomp There It Is song. Mm -hmm. And so they played that over and over, and it was just, hey, here's my present. Hey, here's my present. And the focus wasn't on the family and the joy and the giving and the sharing. The focus was on getting your stuff. And, uh, and the recent version of that is Walmart is currently promoting their online ordering, which, as you know, Doug, I use today. Yeah. <laughs> and then I did pop into my local neighborhood Walmart, and I picked up the thing I'd ordered online from home this morning. But they've got another commercial where they're using the, that sound, sound edit from Young MC, the one that says, you want it, you got it, you want it, baby, you got it. And it's not just about getting, it's about what we create value for, what we do at work, and the ability that we do possess, the ability to afford things that we'd like to share with other people or utilize effectively in our, in our lives, whether at work or at leisure. So consumerism, I think, is a concern, but that's why the Christian faith is so important because it keeps you anchored and focused on the things that are more than temporal. It keeps you focused on the things that are eternal and what you can do today to remain focused on where you're headed over the longer term. Most of our Christian friends on the left would point to consumerism as a, as a major concern and, you know, instant gratification and, you know, e efficiency and productivity over, over people and community and living wages and those kinds of things that they tend to focus on. Are they, I mean, it sounds like they have a good heart. And of course, we would agree that consumerism is, is a problem on the one hand, but it may not necessarily be a cause or sorry, it may not be a, a result of capitalism per se. I read an article Oh, gosh, a couple years ago. It's probably one of my favorite articles uh, by Steve Horwitz about consumerism is more aligned with Keynesianism than it is with true capitalism. Would you agree oh, with that? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with, I've seen that essay. It's been a while, but I agree with that. The fact that Keynes really had a focus on the ability of consumers to consume. In fact, there's, the, there's a line in the general theory where Keynes does say, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, Doug, let's not kid ourselves, the sole end of economic activity is consumption. Yeah, that's pretty strange, especially coming from people on the left, Christians on the left, who really think, oh, well, Keynes was a better economist and Keynesianism is a better path to growth than, say, Austrian economics or even, you know, uh, Chicago school and stuff. I've, I mean, I've literally had leftists, Christian leftists tell me this and I'm just I'm just I'm just baffled by it. I think that the seven deadly sins have always been there and they've always been great temptations to every single one of us. Greed, gluttony, envy, they've always been there and they've always been tempting us. I think every society thinks that their experience with those deadly sins is new, but I think that the temptations that we face in 2018 are really the same old temptations. They're just dressed in 2018 clothing. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. I think libertarians tend to have an affinity for studying economics. In fact, I think a lot of us have become libertarians because we studied some economics and we realized, whoa, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, limits to what we can do, as we talked about earlier. There, there's sort of like Christian economic endeavors, but what what makes a libertarian different from a Christian libertarian? 
So I think, let's see, so I think the Christian libertarians are a subset of libertarianism in general. Uh, I think the I think the distinctive of a Christian libertarian, and I think I'm at a point in my life now where I would describe myself as a Christian libertarian. I think that Christian libertarians like me, they really believe Scripture when it says, He's, "He who the sun sets free is free indeed," and authentically free. And the Greek root there is eleutheros which essentially means the greatest possible freedom. And that's very cool to me. I think sometimes libertarians in general who aren't Christians, they tend to focus more on the negative side of liberty, the emancipation, the ability to do what you want, when you want, however you want to. But negative liberty is just the starting point for the Christian libertarian. I think there's a responsibility that comes along with that negative freedom, and it's the freedom not from something, but it's the freedom for something, to accomplish something, to live a life of meaning and purpose, to serve the Lord and to serve your family and to serve the church in ways that you are uniquely positioned to do, and you can only do those things if you live in a free society that makes it possible for you to flourish as individually and together in community as God intended. Do you think economics influences the way Christians and libertarian Christians treat political ideas? Uh, what I mean by that is there there seems to be a number of a number of topics, and this this is just from my experience in the libertarian Christian Facebook group, and just getting feedback from people on controversial articles that go up on our website. Uh, it seems like things like nationalism, immigration, and free trade tend to be the things that people get riled up about the most, um, even if they are allegedly, and, and I'm not going to question their status as a libertarian, but I'll just use the word allegedly libertarian because I don't really know the person's, you know, speaking out against, you know, kind of these things. It, it seems to be those are hot button issues that all of a sudden when you get into those issues, they're not so much about freedom. I, I guess the question is, does economics influence the way Christians treat those topics or where, where does that all fit in? Yeah, that's that's a really, really good question. I can tell you what my experience has been and what I've sort of have been able to infer from those experiences. And what I found is I think there are a lot of people who at present find themselves or would describe themselves as Christian libertarians, but that hasn't always been the case. I think there are a lot of Christian libertarians today who sort of drifted into libertarianism from some version of conservatism. And so I think what's happened is a lot of those individuals, they're still attracted to a few populist ideas, and you've mentioned a few of them, and I think they haven't considered carefully, especially how human anthropology plays into those particular issues. So, for example, I don't know how other people read their Bibles, but I don't see anywhere in Scripture some sort of rate of geographic decay about how much I should care about another human person, whether he's all the way on the other side of the country in California or all the way on the other side of the globe in China. I don't know that I have any particular moral responsibility first to a Californian just because he happens to be American. Uh, 
than I do to somebody who's living on the other side of the planet who I'm able to participate and exchange with. I mean, I will say a lot of the a lot of the issues that we face in the Middle East today are driven by the fact that we did have managers decide where the new boundaries would be after a great war. And as a consequence, they broke up different racial and ethnic groups and created a lot of conflict where if borders had emerged more naturally, then we wouldn't necessarily have a lot of the conflict that we face today. So let's talk about some current events, some things that are kind of in the public consciousness as of uh, first quarter of 2018 right now. And, you know, Trump is president and Trump has surprised all of us by completely doing things that everyone expected him to do. I'm being sarcastic, of course. Um, and so, and, and there are things that he has promised he would do. Uh, America First was uh, a very much a Trump-like uh, platform, and so Amer- uh, Trump thinks that uh, tariffs are going to improve America's economic well-being and usher in a golden age of I don't know what. Um, so tell us about tariffs. What, why, are they, why are they good for us or why are they bad for us? So, I'll answer the first part, and now I'm done answering the first part. <laughs> They're not good for us. <laughs> They're bad. Who, who for are us. they good for? They're, they're, they're good for somebody. They're, they're good for particular industries and particular lobbyists who are making their living lobbying on behalf of those industries. So a good example is um, American tire manufacturing, because this goes back to the last presidency, the Obama presidency. Early in that presidency, President Obama introduced his own tar- set of tariffs against China. They included tires, steel and of all things electric blankets because we didn't want any of those chinese manufactured goods coming into the united states and just to explain briefly how a tariff works suppose that in 2009 you were an american tire wholesaler and you wanted to bring in some inexpensive chinese tires from china so you could send them to your distributors and eventually get them onto passenger cars of americans who were looking for a good value on tires well, if your import cost on that set of tires from China was a thousand bucks, then if the import tariff were say thirty percent, which ballpark is about where it was, then that would add another thirty percent to your cost as the importer to bringing those tires in. So you pay a thousand dollars to the Chinese manufacturer, and then another three hundred dollars to Washington D.C. for the privilege of bringing those into the country. So. This seems attractive, especially if you have a job at Cooper Tire in Texarkana. And I used to live by Texarkana, so I'm familiar with that Cooper Tire facility. In fact, in one of the presidential debates between Obama and Mitt Romney, Obama brought up the Cooper Tire factory in Texarkana as a great success and a consequence of these import tariffs. What people miss out on is, and here's where Bastia's Seen and the Unseen comes into play, people see that about 100 jobs in Texarkana were preserved, but what they can't see is that with these higher costs of bringing tires in from China, it makes all the tires for all Americans more expensive because now companies like Cooper Tire don't have to be as dutiful and responsive to the marketplace in terms of producing both high quality and low cost tires. It's it's what my friend Patrick Mardini calls market discipline. Unless you have the focus to respond to what consumers in the market need and want, you won't be able to serve them effectively. And these 
import tariffs on Chinese tires, they reduced the need for Cooper to engage in market discipline. So, economists are very clear, clear on how the benefits weigh against the costs. There's a fairly small concentrated benefit for the American tire manufacturer lobby, but there's a massive cost for all Americans who buy tires and drive cars in terms of what that collective cost is in the form of higher tire prices for every single American consumer. You know, the first question that's in my mind, I know you're just using round numbers of a thousand so we could do easy math in our heads, but what kind right. of car do you drive if you're buying thousand dollar tires? <laughs> I, you're exactly right. I was trying to make the numbers nice and round. A hundred <laughs> is a little on the low side. <laughs> a thousand works a little better and I can do the 30% math pretty quickly in my head. Yeah, I gotcha. No, a, <laughs> I was distracted by that for a second because I just bought tires and they were nowhere near that, even though they were a little expensive. Um so we want to protect Cooper tires or the types of places that are like, you know, Cooper tires where there's people who are, you know, high, uh, high labor involvement and we want to keep people's jobs. I mean, if if this is going to allegedly save jobs at the expense of, let's say I spend five to ten dollars more per tire every three years. I mean, why is that such a big deal? I mean, yeah, OK, all of us pay a little bit more. Why should I care that much? I mean, it's five dollars. I'm not going to miss it. Here's the, other, here's the other way that Bastia's seen and the unseen comes into play here. And it's this. Often in the political arena, we view job creation as a benefit, right? Mayors like to tout job creation. Governors like to go to ribbon cuttings or to groundbreakings because we tend to celebrate job creation as a good thing. Here's the thing that is a cold-hearted economist. I have to remind people all the time. You know this catchphrase of, oh, our people are our best resource. Mm -hmm. Managers say it. <laughs> Owners of companies say it. But it really is true. Human labor, human productivity is a resource. And it's one we happen to be very, very rich in. And so if you preserve temporarily or even not so temporarily a few jobs in Texarkana, what you can never know is what those individuals working in Texarkana right now would be free to do instead if they were forced to consider an alternative option. Now, don't get me wrong. If you lose your job because there's another firm out there that competed better than you and had greater market discipline, it's tough. I mean, I grew up as a kid in western Pennsylvania, and I saw steel in its heyday because I was born in 65, and I saw steel pretty much go away. And it's difficult, and it tears a region apart. But also as a western Pennsylvania kid, I was able to see what that economic turnaround looked like in western Pennsylvania by the time the 2000s rolled around. A city that Frank Lloyd Wright said was so dirty they should abandon it. Wow. <laughs> became a thriving service financial center that's a beautiful place to go and visit now. And in the old days, when I was a kid, the downtown was a place that you went to to work and then you drove out into the suburbs to go home. Now, downtown Pittsburgh is a thrilling place to be all day long, including the evening. In fact, I was just there twice in February. And it's just, it's hard to see in the short term what the consequences will be of the generations to follow if you try to preserve the status quo today. Well, and you know, the unseen don't vote. <laughs> you know, because it's just the, it doesn't get you votes. You can't, you can't get up there and, uh, 
uh, Ross Perot your way to a more economic uh, understanding. Can I ask ask you a question sure. for a second? Yeah. So the the question I've got for you, Doug, is have you seen this Russ Roberts parable called The Choice? I have read some of Russ Roberts' stuff, but not not all of it. I haven't read that one. Yeah, well, it's very cool. I've used it in class before, and it's a it's an economic parable. And the way it runs is a little like a uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Story, or a, <laughs> not, not A Christmas Story. That's a totally different thing. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and in Russ Roberts' parable, The Choice. There's a Chicago TV executive who's probably making TVs with a brand on them like Quasar at the time, way back in the mid-1950s or early 60s. -hmm. And this Chicago TV manufacturer executive, family-owned business, he's really concerned about his workers and the heirs to his business. He's concerned about Americans and good televisions, but he's also concerned about a new potential threat from cheap electronic devices from Japan. And so he's weighing whether or not to lobby his local congressional representatives to try to introduce a bill that would restrict the trade of televisions coming in from Japan. Well, one night he's lying in bed asleep and he's been tossing and turning because he's torn by whether or not this is the right thing to do. And he's visited during his slumber by the ghost of David Ricardo. The economist who gave us comparative advantage, the idea that if we specialize in what we have a comparative advantage in and can do it low cost, then if we exchange, we'll be better off. And so the ghost of David Ricardo escorts this Chicago TV executive into two different futures. Hmm. What the future would look like if the trade barriers are enacted. And what the future would look like, again, for his kids and his workers and for Americans if the trade barriers weren't enacted. And when he finishes this night with David Ricardo, he's convinced that it would be the wrong thing to do economically and also ethically to introduce these tariffs because David Ricardo helps him see into the brighter future that's possible when people have the opportunity to engage in more exchange, not less. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. It seems like a lot of economic fallacy or just economic reasoning is all about either the unseen, as in in Bastiat's term, or in Thomas Sowell's terms, uh, second stage thinking. And just Mm -hmm. a lack of, of, well, what is the alternative? And a simple one that I often bring up is, you know, I'll see people on Facebook talk about how you should never do self-checkout at the grocery store because, you know, that, that reduces the number of people who have jobs at the grocery store. And I'm thinking, wait a second, didn't people invent the checkout? (laughs) <laughs> the the self-checkout i mean there were people who spent a lot of money investing in making it easy for people to self-check out on their own i mean if you in theory uh were to eliminate the need for those therefore you know let's say our culture just magically decides no we are not going to have automated checkout systems well what about the people who make automated checkout systems there's a person behind the automation too I was, I found it refreshing and thrilling when after Donald Trump introduced his import tariff on solar panels, America got to learn across all media platforms that there would be about 22,000 jobs estimated that would be lost as a consequence of this import tariff (laughs) on the solar panels because of installation and maintenance on those solar panels. 
So, yeah, it's very hard to see the, well, as Henry Hazlitt put it, it's hard to see the longer effects of a particular actor policy, and it's difficult to see them for every group, not just for the particular group that you have in mind. Yeah, I think one of the... the the subtler yet probably not worth it's probably not worth the worth the hassle we're getting out of Trump but one of the subtler benefits of having Trump as president is that everybody especially those who are on the left are they're all of a sudden more attuned to economic thinking like uh, they understand opportunity costs you know he used to brag about how much money he made in business and yet his businesses didn't outperform uh, typical like 401k investing in terms of like return on investment and so all of a sudden everybody's you know talking about opportunity costs and saying that Trump's an idiot because, you know, he could have just put his money in the market and waited and earned more money than he built. Um, you know, so it, it, it's interesting to me that people starting to realize things, uh, you know, because of Trump. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that over, over, uh, ways is, is, uh, costs in other ways. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit about something that often gets talked about again from the left. And this has to do with wages since we were talking a little bit about labor. Um, there, there's the idea of a living wage, an idea of a minimum wage. What what do people mean when they talk about minimum versus living wage? I mean, to some extent, it seems to me that um, why would we need both in, in their proposals? Like, why would somebody propose a minimum wage and then some other living wage? I think for a lot of individuals, and this is, you know, it's hard to quantify things here because minimum wage can mean something pretty specific. Living wage means something a little less specific. So let me try to clarify here. Minimum wage would simply be a minimum number of dollars per hour that an employer is required to pay to his or her worker. And this works out pretty well if the minimum wage is below the market-determined wage, because then that's great. The market has determined that the human being creating that value in an hour is worth more than whatever the minimum is. The minimum wage starts to become a problem if it's set somewhere above the normal price for labor that the labor market would normally have it gravitate toward. So, simple examples work really well here. You could introduce a minimum wage for a cup of Starbucks coffee, right? So, a venti dark roast, you could set a minimum price for that. And if you set it above what the currently prevailing price is, then I think we're all pretty sure that Starbucks would sell fewer cups of coffee because that price is higher than the current mutually determined between Starbucks and Starbucks customers, that mutually determined price. So in the case of the minimum wage in the labor market, if you raise the price of labor per hour higher than the mutually determined one between the employers and the employees, then employers will be less inclined to hire as many hours of labor as they, than they would otherwise. What's, what's behind all that? And I'll go back to what I said a little bit earlier. It's like, well, maybe we should pay 30 cents more for a cup of coffee, you know, or, <laughs> right. or maybe maybe we should be willing to, you know, because these are people who, you know, they're just getting started. They might be single moms uh, trying to support a family and all of those kinds of scenarios. And I realize that a lot of minimum wage jobs could just be teenagers and, and that's fine. We should we should support and encourage them to work. Uh, but why are we penny pinching over probably the equivalent of like 10 to 50 cents <laughs> on those kinds of things? What's, what's beyond, oh, well, now we got to pay more. Who cares? I can tell you my personal experience with the minimum wage, and it's pretty straightforward. My mom and dad both were raised by single moms. They grew up in poverty, but somehow they were able to make it to college. My father graduated, and we were able to have a working to middle class life. 
But as a kid, I was interested in trying to put away some money for college and also having a little spending money of my own because my parents didn't have much. We had a, one car and my dad walked to work and we sort of made it work. We weren't poor, but we also weren't middle, middle to upper middle class either. So my first job came at the age of 11. So I was a child laborer. I went to work in Western Pennsylvania delivering the afternoon newspaper, the Indiana Evening Gazette. And I got paid not by the hour, but based on how many newspapers I delivered. So that job was a below minimum wage job. But boy, I was really thankful to have it because not only did I get income, I got to visit with people once a week when I collected the money that they were going to pay me. I learned how to deal with people who didn't pay me on time. I learned how to do my bookkeeping for my little business because I was the subcontractor for the for the local newspaper. And as an 11-year-old, that was some of the best life experience that I've ever gotten. And then, just to quickly follow up, my second job, I worked in our local mom-and-pop hardware store in my small town of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. And Bud, and Bud and Greta Murray were my employers. And the state of Pennsylvania minimum wage at the time was three thirty-five an hour, which seems ridiculous today, I know. But that was the state of Pennsylvania minimum. When I got my first paycheck, though, I was startled to see that I'd been paid a mere two eighty-five an hour. <laughs> and after making a few inquiries, because you had to make inquiries in those days, you couldn't Google it. <laughs> What I found out was that there was a state of minimum or state of Pennsylvania exemption for something called trainer's pay. And if you had a young, inexperienced person who had just arrived at a job, you could for a set period of time pay this person, in my case me, pay this person something that was less than the 335 minimum, in my case 285. But again, Doug, when I reflect on that experience, that's when I really grew up. <laughs> As somebody in the working world, I learned things as a 15 and 16-year-old like, well, if your shift starts at 8, you really need to be before there before that so that you're ready to go at 8. I learned how to clean up my workplace before I went home. I learned how to be nice to people even when you didn't feel like being nice to people. And I got to wait on adults, adult customers from around the community, learn their names, call them by their first names, and all of that to say that my experiences below the minimum wage, those were some of the most formative life experiences and helped me understate and navigate the workplace and understand that every workplace has a different culture. Those were fantastic experiences for me, and I'd sure hate to see in an effort to do the right thing by workers discourage less of that sort of experience that I got. I'm going to push back a little bit on that sure. story. And I realize that's anecdotal, but you, you had the safety of being a child in a, in a home that already had primary income. And I think the, the usual complaints about the minimum wage are for people who are, again, I, I realize that if you... If you're 19 years old and you're trying to make your way and you can't afford to go to college and this is all you can get, I can understand a, a, a modicum of, of complaint. But what about the the little more destitute, the one where they have a child, there's there's survival more on the line than it wasn't for you that that you didn't have to uh, worry about in the in the story you just told. Yeah, so and I think you're right to push back. So as a clear thinking yet warm-hearted economist. I can tell you this, if in an hour at work, you create something that your employer can sell to his customers for 
your employer will never pay you $15 an hour in exchange for that work. It's a losing proposition for an employer to pay you 15 if he can take the proceeds from your labor in that hour and sell it for only 12 Even if we don't care for what the market-determined wage is, it ensures that more employment happens and that more of the people who would be the most likely to lose their jobs, because they are young, inexperienced, low-skilled, 19-year-olds, and who have few options available to them, I don't think as a society we want to get in the way of maybe the last best option that they have. As an economist, I'm pretty convinced that people who are currently working in their present position, they're doing it because everyone, they're doing it because it's currently the best available option to them. And especially for the young, inexperienced single parents out there, I want to make sure that we preserve as many options as possible rather than perhaps make some of those options go away. So what about a living wage? Where, where does that differ uh, from just uh, from the minimum wage? Living wage, that expression can mean different things depending on who you're talking to and which politicians in which states are making the speeches. But the argument behind the living wage is simply that, well, even the minimum wage, as we've constructed it, it's not sufficient to support a family of two or three or four at that minimum wage. So if you want to be even more humane than what the minimum wage is, then you could offer something that's more like a living wage and numbers that people bandy around when they talk about the living wage are normally somewhere in the 14 to 15 to 16 dollar an hour range. You know, the confusing thing to me about thinking about a living wage is like, at what point do you decide this employee deserves a living wage versus just the minimum wage? I mean, is it, Matt, is it, do we make these decisions based on whether or not they have a family and therefore, you know, um, you know, uh, they need, you know, say they have two dependents and a, and a spouse and they need to make four times the amount as a normal minimum wage worker, even though they're both 21 years old. Like I, those are kind of questions that, that, that kind of, trouble me about implementing a, a, a living wage. A lot of the living wage discussion does tend to be quite subjective. I know a lot of people will normally begin with where the U.S. poverty line is. They'll also take a look at what sorts of means-tested benefits are available to people currently living below the poverty line. And then they'll use those numbers to try to tease out an estimate of what a humane, more quote-unquote living wage would be. So let's let's go to the other end of the spectrum. And um, as of as of early 2018, uh, we have Jeff Bezos worth 124 billion with a B dollars. Uh, we have Mark Zuckerberg worth 64, and we got Bill Gates at 90, Elon Musk at a more reasonable 19. Why is it not a tragedy, or maybe it is a tragedy? Why are they worth so much? <laughs> Boy, Bill Gates has really lost ground <laughs> over the last couple of decades, hasn't he? Oh, poor guy. <laughs> it, it must be. T it ain't easy being Bill. I like to. I like to talk about these exact examples in class. Um, one of the ways to talk about Bill Gates is how did Bill Gates get rich? Did he have a diamond mine, gold mine, oil wells? Did he have a lot of material resources? No, not at all. What did he do? He figured out how to creatively and cleverly make our lives better, and make our lives our lives way better in ways that 
affect all of us, even people who have never touched a computer or a smartphone. They have met better medical care. They have better ventilation and air conditioning when they go shopping. They have lower prices on goods and services <laughs> because Bill Gates was there and available and made the uh, DOS operating system and eventually the office suite. And so he's enriched our lives in ways that are almost difficult to measure in monetary terms because it's not just about the transaction price of selling the software. It's what people have been able to accomplish with that software in exchange for their $100 purchase, or in the case of my students, their $0 purchase because we use Microsoft products on campus, so they get three licenses they can use across all their devices. So I think life is unambiguously way better. And how did Bill Gates get so rich? Well, he got $100 here and $100 there, and he did it over and over and over. And so we missed $100 not very much because we wanted the software, but wow, it really piled up. What did mm -hmm. you say? $90, $90 billion? Yeah, <laughs> yeah for him. Well, yeah. What, what about people like Jeff Bezos? I mean, the headlines right now that are kind of flowing through Facebook and social media are that he's worth X dollars. I'm not going to do the math off the top of my head here. X dollars per hour because he's worth $124 billion. And his employees are making like somewhere between $10 and, $10 and $20 an hour. It's not not a lot. Um, it's above minimum wage, but just, you know, a, a pittance compared to how much Jeff Bezos makes an hour. And so there's, there's parts parts of that is two questions. One is, is this just a, uh, the comparison between uh, Bezos and the kind of low-end Amazon worker. Is this just a regurgitation of Marxist labor theory of value? And then the second question is, what does it mean for somebody to be, quote, worth $124 billion? When we talk about this with my students in class, I'll just toss out the question, so are you guys glad Amazon exists? And it's almost always unanimous. People are thrilled. They're members of Prime. They have the student version of Prime that doesn't cost them much. They're delighted. They've got all these shopping options that they just didn't have when they were kids. So it's a great thing for them. Um, when you think about how wealthy Jeff Bezos is, I think there are a couple of ways to reflect on that. One is, as you point out, his paycheck is really, really big, and the paycheck of others in that organization, those paychecks are smaller. One of the things to consider is just how many people's lives are affected by how, by how Jeff Bezos conducts himself in any given day, what's the value of that company, and how costly would it be to his workers? and to their families if he made a mistake. And what if that mistake wasn't a small one? What if it was a big one? So CEO pay, I think, should correspond to the responsibility and obligation that an employer like Jeff Bezos has, especially as that enterprise grows more and more successful, serves more and more customers, and employs more and more wage earners who have families counting on them and depending on them. That's a lot of responsibility, and I don't know that I've got the internal gut check it would take to take over a job like Jeff Bezos and just manage the enterprise, not even do the new cutting-edge things that he does, mm -hmm. but basically just keep the ship afloat. I don't know that I would trade my current job on any given day for that job even for one. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing that, we don't always calculate is how much money do we save 
that ends up going either into our own pockets, you know, by shopping on Amazon or even just the competition created by the fact that Amazon exists, you know, how much, how much less we're paying on shipping. Now I realize those costs are, you know, accounted for somewhere, but Amazon has influenced the cost of things and made them go down. And I realize there's an argument on the other side of like, well, what is, what is that at the, at the expense of? But that means that I can now afford a venti coffee or the thousand dollar tires uh, because my books are like far less in cost. I'm sure you and I both agree that uh, buying books for cheaper because we're probably book people uh, is, is a really good thing. Uh, so we, we reap those gains as well, not just, not just in the fact that we're saving money at Amazon. We're actually saving money in other ways as well. Yeah, and think about how brave Amazon has been with its marketing. When you go to shop for a particular book on Amazon, Amazon, what do they tell you? They tell you their price, and they also tell you all the other prices from all the other booksellers in their network. Mm. What firm in its right mind would say, yeah, you could buy it from us, but you could go these 12 other places, and here are their prices too. Yeah. Yeah, that's how confident they can be that they're delivering a high quality product at a low cost normally for prime customers with free shipping and you get it in a day or two. So let's, let's talk about one more topic. And it's one that I know that you like to talk about. This is kind of a uh, change of change of direction here is uh, fair, fair trade coffee. Tell us about why you're into fair trade. Yeah, so Fairtrade Coffee was something I started to look at about, actually about 10 years ago now, and it was sort of a new field. Little tip for your uh, PhD students out there, if you want to become an expert in a field pretty quickly, just find a young research area, and then you can go to EconLit, you can read pretty much all the journal articles that are out there, and you'll be as knowledgeable as anybody else on the planet in that area in a short amount of time. So I basically did that. I read everything there was to read in EconLit about fair trade coffee because I didn't know that much about it, but I wanted to understand two things. A, how the model worked, and B, whether or not it was delivering on a promise. So I'm sure your listeners have seen or heard of fair trade coffee. The idea is when you see the seal on there that says it's certified fair trade coffee, then the growers at the other end of the supply chain, they get a minimum price per pound. They also get an additional currently 20 cents per pound to use for projects in their villages. And you get an assurance that the coffee's been grown under some pretty specific conditions, like not in the rainforest, without child labor, grown uh, according to international labor standards. So you get all of those things in exchange for what you see on the bag. What's harder to know is what goes on once you've paid a lot of money for coffee that's certified as fair trade. It's hard to know whether that's making a difference or not. So are there still things that are unknown about it or did you did you uncover any, you know, hidden scheme that it's really actually bad for the really poor or something like that? What I learned is it's very attractive if you're a poor coffee grower to enter into a fair trade coffee agreement and the greatest single incentive is that it reduces risk for you because once you're in that fair trade coffee agreement, then the any price volatility risk in terms of what coffee's going to go for, that falls on the fair trade buyer that you have a contract with. But what I've learned about fair trade coffee is that it's really not doing what caring consumers wish it would do. Um, lots of research out now. One study in, in uh, Nicaragua showed that fair trade coffee growers were actually worse off 10 years into their agreement than a similar group of coffee growers in the same country who were participating in the conventional market. And the main reason was, and this is one of the big secrets of fair trade coffee, it's really expensive for the growers 
to join the fair trade coffee network in the market. They're actually asked to pay thousands of dollars just to join the fair trade network. And then even once they're approved to be in the network, they have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars of annual fees for the monitoring and compliance that Fair Trade International does to come in and inspect you periodically and make sure that you're conducting your business and growing your coffee in ways that are consistent with the standards articulated by Fair Trade. So as we begin to wrap up, uh, as Christians engaged in the economic way of thinking, give us a little bit of an idea of like, what should we be thinking about? You know, with respect to something like fair trade, you know, there's those decisions that we make. We see a label on the on the coffee bag that says that this is fair trade, or we see that something is organic, or we see that something is not tested on animals or whatever it may be. What types of things should Christians always keep in mind um, as we evaluate the kind of decisions that we make? Yeah, I think that um, I think that the the simplest rule to keep in mind is to ask yourself whether you're treating another human being as an object or as a subject. And this is language that my friend Michael Miller, who produced Poverty Inc., uses. Um, if we objectify the poor and we treat them as a cause, right? They're the poor people, and we want to help them, and they're over there, and they're in particular circumstances that are really bad. Then we don't recognize their intrinsic human dignity and the fact that they should be the subjects of their own lives. They should be the authors of their own lives. Eventually, Doug, the poor, which is how we often refer to them, they should be able to be generous just as every Christian is called to be generous. So when you're thinking about these decisions, it can be hard. My, Rob, my friend Robin Clay that I wrote Economics in Christian Perspective with, she thinks that sometimes for Christians you can be paralyzed because we are so interconnected and there is this problem of the unseen that it's hard to know sometimes what the right thing to do is. But I think we're also called to understand economics better. I think we're also called to pray for discernment and wisdom in making the right decision as we attempt to serve another human being, whether it's a human being we'll meet one day face-to-face -face or not. So in the case of Fair Trade Coffee, read what you can. My short 70-page book is a really good way to understand quickly what's going on with Fair Trade, what works and what doesn't. Um, think tanks like the Acton Institute, I think, have done an increasingly good job of laying out for Christians with a libertarian leaning um, what you can do on some of these particular particular topics. And then finally, our friends, uh, people like Jacqueline Otto Isaacs and Elise Daniel, their book called The Freedom, I think does a wonderful job of putting together caring, considered Christianity with an authentic view of the human person created in the image of God with these libertarian ideas and faith and hope and marvel and wonder at the economic order. Victor, thanks for being with us today to talk about Christian economics. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.